Stuart Isikoff is an educator, author, and jazz and classical pianist. He brings passion and intellectual rigor to all his creative endeavors, but feels the key to a truly creative life is epitomized in the openness and improvisation of jazz. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Today we revisit my 2009 conversation with Stuart Isikoff, where we discuss his life in music and his book, Temperament, the idea that solved music's greatest riddle. Improvisation itself must be how music began. I mean, after all, before we had notation, before we had any kind of organized system, um, surely uh, cavemen and women uh, beat on um, skulls and hollowed logs and, uh, and made up sounds. You know, Darwin suggested that, that melody came from uh, the act of primitive uh, men wooing primitive women. He saw a, a, a sexual content to the creation of music. And, oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, among the musicians we know, that's, that's a very strong attribute, <laughs> I would say. Well, they always say that about jazz musicians, you know. I think that's true. <laughs> but even in uh, Western music, uh, Western European music, which many people regard as being very unlike jazz, um, I say in the book that monks actually began improvising on early chant as a way to uh, vent their creativity, um, get around a certain boredom that has to set in when you do the same thing over and over again. And that improvisation was the beginning of uh, tonal harmony mm-hmm. in Western music. So improvisation has always been with us. And of course, because it leads to new things, it's also feared as well as welcomed. Uh, and um, we have examples even in, uh, in early music when improvisation was really commonplace. You have a great composer like uh, Josquin Desprez, who berated a singer once for improvising on his music uh, by saying, uh, you jackass, if, I'd ha- if I had wanted that many notes, I would have written it right into the score. Oh. So um, there's, there's always been a kind of a struggle, a tug of war over this mm. improvising aspect in music, but it's, it, it was very much alive. And the greatest classical composers that we, that we know of today, including Bach and Beethoven and Chopin and Liszt and, and so on, they were all great improvisers, and their music reflects that improvisational ability. Why do you think that that, that stopped in classical music? Because I'm fascinated with it because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in early days when this was performed in salons and things like that, they would mix it up. They'd have a singer. They'd have somebody play. If, they, if the audience particularly liked a movement, they'd applaud and they'd repeat the movement. And... That's not the way classical music's presented at all now. I mean, it's very formal. It probably has to do with the uh, social changes in the way music is presented. There were not really public concerts until uh, the 18th century, I think, when, when, um, when masses were invited in to halls. Uh, up until then, it was a very intimate kind of a process. Chamber music was really in a chamber. Mm. Um, and... Uh, I think that when music got bigger and bigger for larger and larger audiences, something changed in the quality of, of, of what was taking place. 
even so, in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was still tremendous improvisation, tremendous excitement. I, I'm not sure exactly why that began to disappear. Mm. Um, in the organ tradition, in, in, uh, even in schools, organists are still taught to improvise, but pianists usually are not. And what is that about? Why would that be? Why would an organist be taught to improvise and not a pianist? I think there's, there's a tradition there that, that held on. Uh, especially in church, um, being able to uh, take a melody, a liturgical melody, mm-hmm. or something for uh, a particular day of the year or or a holiday, and work with it and create a create a piece out of it. That somehow that 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 remained a part of the church tradition. Although these days, I'm sure that's fast disappearing too. I mean, mm-hmm. after all, we're replacing Latin with English. We're replacing um, liturgical chant with you know, folk singing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, all of this is, is kind of going away. Although there's this resurgence now in educational institutions of, of uh, improvisation because so many people want it. Ella Fitzgerald with Hank Jones, Ray Brown, and Buddy Rich on Robin's Nest from a 1949 Jazz at the Philharmonic concert at Carnegie Hall. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is pianist Stuart Isikoff. It's interesting to think that chamber music started in a small setting, as you said, and now it's gotten in the big halls and it's become more formal. And jazz started in clubs in this very intimate setting, and now it's getting bigger and bigger. And do you think, as a classical musician and a jazz musician, which is rare because most people don't do both, that jazz is becoming less improvisational as it's becoming more of a concert 
music? I think it is. Isn't that interesting? Um, it's very interesting. You know, there are arguments over where jazz belongs. And I've always welcomed the idea that it would be in the concert hall because I, uh, I feel that it, it, in that way it gets a certain level of respect that it ordinarily doesn't get. But I think you're right. I think there is a, a um, I don't know if you're implying that that's what happens yourself, but... but well, for me, <clears> as, a, as a jazz pianist, it doesn't happen for me because I'm so happy that the sound is better because, and I don't know exactly what it was like for classical musicians, but for jazz musicians, very often, if you're in the ideal club situation... The intimacy is there, but it's also quiet. But that's so rare that the quality of sound is so bad that it inhibits, for me, a certain kind of improvisation because I'm into sound and the space between the notes so that when I'm in a concert hall and the quality of silence is so good, I find that I go deeper emotionally and can improvise more. So that's different, but also... That intimate setting does give a certain kind of comfort that you can improvise with. So it's a dilemma because it's rare to get a quiet club for a jazz musician. At least it is in my experience. It's very hard. I can remember some painful times in, in intimate situations. For example, a man I, I studied jazz with many, many years ago, Sir Roland Hanna, who passed away recently, um, was playing at the cookery in the village one night, and I was there to see him, and he was playing just an exquisite improvisation, and a man walked up to him in the middle of it and said, it's my wife's birthday, play happy birthday. <sighs> and, of course, that wouldn't happen in a concert hall. No, exactly. Um, uh, however, I think there is a certain... There is a certain special magic that can take place in, 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 in intimacy that you do lose. But, you know, I, I think that, that um, it's more, it's not so much the size of the hall as the pressure to be commercially successful that, uh, that robs people of, that, of the, the daring and, the, and, the, and even maybe the concentration That's to, to go, go within and create something new. Um, and and it, it affected even some of our greats. Um, I, at one time in my life, I was transcribing solos off records, and I transcribed several uh, se several tracks of the same tune performed by Charlie Parker with Miles Davis, and I transcribed Miles' solos. And it turned out that he took virtually the same solo every single time. And that's not something that would have happened later in his life. This is the young Miles Davis but it's the young Miles Davis struggling to uh, to keep up with people like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and, and, and wanting to gain acceptance. So he had certain things worked out that he did. Um, as he matured, uh, he had the confidence to, to go his own way. Thank you. 
Miles Davis on a 1949 recording of Move from the CD Birth of the Cool. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is pianist Stuart Isikoff. Some people are born with a higher comfort level and higher tolerance for novelty, rendering them a person that would love improvisation and the thought of improvisation and things changing and that other people are not. And I ask this because I'm thinking again of your book and all these people that argued through the ages about how... Temper, what type of temperament we should have, whether people should improvise with their music. Are there truly different ways of focusing? Because, of course, some people could go to a jazz club from a small age and wind up being jazz fans, and other people could wind up hating it. Is it, is it a different personality type, do you think? I think that there are so many elements that go into forming musical taste and forming personal reactions to music that it's almost impossible to categorize. <clears throat> But, for example, there are people who are extroverts and people who are introverts. Um, There are people who are comfortable with kind of intricate, uh, complex ideas, and there are people who just want to swing and and tap their toes to something. Uh, And there's a kind of jazz to suit each of those tastes, luckily. You know, it's not just one thing. But there's also cultural conditioning. There's, you know, what are we familiar with? What are we happy with? The people in my book who are arguing are, are sometimes uh, arguing simply because they, they can't let go of certain attachments they've formed to ideas. Um, they just can't get beyond it. And we all know what that's like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think a truly creative artist is constantly struggling to sort of dissolve all of those barriers and say, okay, what if I don't know everything? What if there is some other way of looking at things, even though it may be scary or even distasteful at the moment? Maybe there's a way I can find into that that will actually broaden my art. Mm. Um, It's a kind of a a Zen struggle with being, allowing the moment to be and to to permeate you, even though you might have constructed certain certain rigid ideas about how things should be. 
What jazz musician do you think is particularly great at that? Hmm. Um, it's <laughs> it's so hard. I think uh, people who I listen to and have loved have exhibited this trait uh, to my way of, of perceiving um, at different times in their careers. Mm. For example, um, there's a time when Herbie Hancock, uh, to me, was uh, the closest thing to an angel uh, <laughs> singing from the heavens, you know, when he was the, during the period of that he was with Miles.
Herbie Hancock with Miles Davis on a 1964 recording of My Funny Valentine, a favorite recording of my guest pianist, Stuart Isikoff. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Then there were other times during Herbie Hancock's career when I, I haven't felt that way about his playing, although there is clearly a, a, a genius at work there. Mm-hmm. Um, John Coltrane is uh, an artist who always touched me very, very deeply. And um, and there are people who are uh, more sort of traditional in their approaches, like Oscar Peterson, Oscar Peterson, for example, who always sounds like Oscar Peterson, and yet uh, there's an endless variety anyway. There's uh, He keeps me interested regardless of the fact that he sounds like Oscar Peterson and he <laughs> doesn't seem to venture into some... You know, wild uh, domain. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Cary Grant of piano. <laughs> People <laughs> always say he was always Cary Grant, but they were still interested in him. Yeah, in his movies. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway and Sons. Thanks also to Carol Phillips, Steve Potnicki, and Jamie Pierce. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with pianist Stuart Isikoff. How do you deal with that in your own playing? Do you have a different thought process when you sit down to play Chopin than you do when you're playing jazz, or are you always you and it's just whatever you're playing and you don't think about it because it all mixes together in a natural way? How does that work for you? Well, it, um, I think there's a difference between uh, the process of recreating music that someone else has written and the process of improvising your own. Um, and, and, and by the way, all of my jazz friends consider me a classical player, and all my classical friends consider me a jazz player. So <laughs> either I'm not, I'm not very good at either one, or it's some strange mixture that no one can recognize. <sighs> but um, I try to stay true to, uh, to the spirit of the piece, so that even if I'm improvising on a piece by, uh, say, Russian composer Alexander Scriabin, um, what I do in my in my programs is I merge classical pieces with jazz or pop pieces in in which there are certain musical similarities. Either there's a similar progression of harmonies, or there are there's some kind of melodic uh, germ that both both worlds seem to be sharing, or there's there's some conceptual connection, <clears throat> and I marry them together so that I take a Scriabin prelude and I take the song Over the Rainbow. And I marry them together um, and then improvise on the combination. When I, In that particular case, I try to stay true to Scriabin, and I improvise in Scriabin style as much as I can. Um, in the case of um, a Scarlatti sonata in D minor and the song Yesterdays by Jerome Kern, um, I also find a connection, and, and there again, uh, I begin improvising in Scarlatti style, but then eventually morph into into a jazz solo um and in mixing say olivier messian um great mystic french composer and wayne shorter which i also do 
uh, I find similarities between their sound worlds, which is a very mysterious and very polytonal uh, kind of sound. Um, and I try to stay both to tr- true to both of them at the same time when I'm playing. So there's a little bit of this recreating going on, trying to understand what the composer's intentions were. And at the same time, there is this creative process that happens where I say, how can I make something new uh, within this context? Um, So I think it's possible to do both, really.
Stuart Isikoff on the Wayne Shorter tune, Fall. I'm talking with author Stuart Isikoff about the idea behind his book, Temperament. Well, people who listen to or play the piano today are familiar with the with this scale. <clears throat> there are 12 notes altogether, um, both black and white. And the major scale that we're used to hearing, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, on the, the white keys, are what most people consider to be the natural way that music occurs. Somehow, it seems that this must have always been the way things are. This is, this is it. This is the sound. <clears throat> and in fact, this scale that we hear on the piano today was once considered a crime against nature and against God. Um, and the, f the reason for this goes all the way back to the 5th century B.C., where a philosopher named Pythagoras, whose formula for finding the diagonal, uh, the, the, excuse me, his formula for finding the hypotenuse of a right triangle is well known to everyone as a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Well, Pythagoras came up with a mathematical formula for finding beauty in music. <clears throat> and this has to do with certain basic uh, intervals and harmonies that, that we still use today. For example, from do to do on the piano is an octave. And Pythagoras found that the octave occurs when the higher note is vibrating exactly twice as fast as the lower one. So we have a proportion, two to one, that creates the octave. <clears throat> the fifth, which is from do to sol on the piano, or from C to G, for example, is created when the, there is a proportion between the higher note and the lower note, and, and that proportion is three to two. So Pythagoras has this whole range of, uh, of consonances in music, or beautiful sounds, that he finds a mathematical formula for. And, of course, it seems to be heaven-sent. I mean, there's nothing that sounds more alike than two notes in an octave. I mean, this is, this is basic. Fifths as well. They, the fifth it doesn't sound quite as alike uh, as an octave. Uh, it has a sound that still seems where the two notes seem to belong together somehow in a marriage, but they're not exactly the same. Galileo described the sound of a fifth as being a combination of a kiss and a bite. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, then later on uh, in the 13th century, we began developing another harmony that's very important to us today called the third from uh, do to me or C to E on the piano, for example. And uh, that proportion that creates the third is five to four. All's well and good. We have our wonderful proportions. The problem is that if you try to tune the piano so that beginning on any note you can get an octave and also get a perfect fifth and also get a pure third, it cannot be done. These proportions actually create create different, uh, well, they they create different offspring that that <clears throat> that re actually refuse to meet. So a note on a piano can either be the fifth of another note or it can be the third of another note. It cannot be both. Here's the problem. <clears throat> what do we do about this? Because heaven has decreed, and by the second century, um, you have um, the church claiming that it was the Son of God 
who had tuned the world in this way. So it's not only just a philosophical idea, now it has theological weight. So what do you do? You can't alter these wonderful proportions uh, because that's tampering with God. Um, at the same time, you can't use them if you have an instrument with fixed pitches like a piano. If you have voices, you could always squeeze this way or that way, or a stringed instrument, for example. <clears throat> on, a fixed pick, on, a, on an instrument with fixed pitches, um, you can't make it work unless you begin to alter these proportions. So you have all kinds of sets of, uh, of solutions to these things, including keyboards with many, many more than 12 keys to an octave. You have keyboards with 35 notes to an octave, for example. Now, I have enough trouble with 12. I don't know about you. <laughs> <clears throat> so I can't imagine yeah. playing 35 notes to it. Um, um, and then you have people who say, all right, well, let's just adjust the fifths a little bit, to, and, and, and that way we get to, to keep the thirds pure. Whatever solution you come up with, there are positive aspects to the solution. There are some beautiful sounds. There are negative aspects. There are going to be some notes that are just not usable. Until you come to this radical solution that we have today called equal temperament, where you take that octave and you divide it into 12 parts. As a result of that, all of the, except for the octave, all of these wonderful proportions are altered in some way. Um, and uh, there are people even today who claim that this is a horrible thing that's happened, <laughs> that it's robbed music of its beauty. And, uh, in fact, I'm being attacked all over the Internet because people are seeing me as an advocate of equal temperament, which is a horrible thing. Um, just because of this book. Just because of this book. So, so the argument continues. The argument absolutely continues. And it continues for hundreds of years. The interesting thing for me in the book is to see how the same argument pops up century after century uh, in a slightly different guise, mm. depending on what else is going on at the time. Which is history, which, which is you history. always see because it reflects that. That's right. fascinating. Right. Introduced by other people who were who were playing to kinds of music I had never heard before. I had my closest friend in high school, Steve Cutler, um, was a drummer, and he had an enormous. He didn't live in a little apartment. He actually lived in a house, and he had an, a basement with an enormous record collection and a stereo system. And um, 
I began hearing music that uh, just absolutely knocked me out. I never knew it existed. Um, and the very first jazz album I ever heard was Dave Brubeck's uh, Time Out album, mm. I think. And the sound, uh, it wasn't so much Brubeck's playing, although that was, that was great, but it was the sound of Paul Desmond's saxophone, I think, that really uh, just enchanted me. Nineteen sixty-three recording of For All We Know with Paul Desmond and the Dave Brubeck Quartet. I'm Judy Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with pianist Stuart Isakoff. My mother thought it would be great if I would for the rest of my life play on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> you could always play on the weekends, she would say. And work during the week and play that's on the weekends. And above all she wanted me to be an accountant, um, or to take the civil service exam so I would have the benefits, you know. <laughs> Actually, in hindsight, that was not such a bad plan. I mean, she I didn't know be, about I, the great benefits jazz musicians get? <laughs> I would be retired by now if I had done that. <sighs> so, um, yeah, so th- that was that was something I, that uh, they discouraged me from doing, actually. Mm, mm. And um, <clears throat> I learned more and more about jazz. And, mm-hmm experimented more and more. And then um, when I was about 17 or 18, I guess, um, I, I was going, I, I was underage, but I was going to clubs in New York with my friends and, um, and uh, generally being humiliated uh, by having people question my age and not, oh. not want to let me in. <laughs> we, went to the, we went to the half note one night. I remember to hear Cannibal Adderley. Uh. I mean, holy cow, to be in the same room with Cannibal Adderley. It's, it's an amazing thing. And um, I was asked for, for my ID, and when, when I said, "Well, actually, I'm underage," the waiter shouted for everyone in the house to hear, "No liquor at this table." <laughs> oh, this is painful. But <laughs> at least you weren't on a date; you were with your guy friend. I friends. was with my guy friend. It would have been worse if you were with a girl. Right. That would have been the worst.
1960 recording of Easy Living with Cannonball Adderley, Barry Harris, Sam Jones, and Lewis Hayes. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is Stuart Isikoff, who talked with me about his book, Temperament. One of the controversies in the book is the question of what is natural, because um, for Pythagoras and for other people, for example, um, the great Renaissance theorist Zarlino, who was embroiled in a huge battle with Galileo's father, Vincenzo. Galileo's father was a musician. Um, there's this question of, of, of what is natural, what, what are the heavens telling us? And in fact, Johannes Kepler, the great astronomer, said that the planets had been placed in the heavens according to the just intonation musical scale. And um, so it, it wasn't just musicians, and it wasn't just... Um, people who were super religious or or uh, whose whose minds were locked in a little box who felt this way kepler uh, obviously brilliant uh, found this connection and um and on the other hand you have uh, another theorist a mathematician named simon stephen a Dutchman who uh, who claimed that actually the only natural scale is the one we have today on the piano equal temperament, and his reasoning was that if all of these octaves and fifths and thirds collide with each other, and they uh, and they they don't work, obviously someone measured wrong, yeah. And Pythagoras just simply had the wrong measurements. This is the problem, and e- and the equal tempered scale because it doesn't have any of these collisions is the most natural one. Mm. And Stephen, by the way, felt that Pythagoras' big problem was that he spoke Greek instead of Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but our connections uh, between um, between music and nature are uh, are still very strong, I think. And I brought along something by the Paul Winter consort called Wolf Eyes, in which Paul Winter has taken the cry of a wolf and. Um, transcribed the melody, the wolf's melody, and turned it into a piece mm. uh, uh, that his group plays. And it opens with the wolf, and then you hear Paul Winter's saxophone imitating the wolf, and it turns into the most gorgeous piece. So he's jamming with another species. He's jamming. With, and <laughs> in fact, following this, uh, there's another cut in which he actually just jams with the wolf.
I was thinking about what you were saying about different temperaments and and all of that and tunings. I think of Johnny Hodges with the way he could bend a note and all of that and why it works with him and other people try to do it and it doesn't. This idea of, of, of bending notes is so important for so many different kinds of music in the world. And uh, this is one of the problems people have with me when they accuse me of being an equal temperament advocate because they think that I'm saying that everything should sound that way. And it's not what I'm saying. Actually, I don't think I take sides so much in the book. Um, I celebrate the advent of equal temperament as a great accomplishment, um, but I don't think it is superior. It it has its place, just like any other tuning. I don't think it's superior to other tunings. I think uh, each thing in its own time and place. Um, in fact, I quote uh, this uh, music theorist, uh, Neidhardt, uh, from the Baroque era, who says that equal temperament brings with it its comforts and discomforts, like blessed matrimony. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I think that when we hear a jazz musician or mm, someone uh, playing uh, world music, for example, um, where they're, they're, they're playing in the cracks between the piano's keys, there's something that can be so wonderfully expressive about this. And, and it's great. It's just that a piano can't do it. Um, and the book is, really is about uh, what we had to come to when we're playing keyboard instruments with, with fixed pitches. Um, what Johnny Hodges does is, I think, very similar to what, um, what a lot of people around the world do when they, when they add expressivity. Even classical violinists, by the way, who will slide into a note at times. Um, he has a way of kind of tugging at your heart as he, um, as he bends uh, a note and doesn't doesn't quite get there right away, maybe, but the, but delays that arrival. Um, There's something just wonderfully musical about it, and um, uh, I I've always been very uh, affected by his playing. Mm. inspired by this conversation and by the book. I think it was just great, and and I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you, and may I add that I've always been a great fan of yours, and it's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to author Stuart Isikoff. 
I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Justin Peacock. Additional technical support was provided by Jamie Berger at WLIU Southampton, New York. The closing theme music is from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Thanks to Carol Phillips, Jamie Pierce, and Steve Plotnicki. Find out more about our program on our website, jazzinspired.com. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway & Sons and recorded at the Museum of Television and Radio in New York City by Chip Cristarella. Thank you.